Well, good morning. Our text for this hour is uh, just four verses in Joshua chapter 1. This was assigned to me. I didn't choose it, but I loved studying it. I'll be using the Legacy Standard Bible in my message this morning. Joshua chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 6 through 8. And in this text, Yahweh is commissioning Joshua to be Moses' successor. So the Lord speaks to Joshua directly, and there is every reason from the text to assume that this came to Joshua in an audible voice. This is not from a a feeling inside his bones or a voice inside his head. It's not a vague sense of direction that came from Joshua's own imagination. Because when God speaks to someone in Scripture, it is always in a clear voice. And even when Yahweh speaks to Elijah in a gentle whisper, there's no ambiguity in the message. And when the voice of the Almighty is giving instructions like these, there's just no question about who is doing the speaking. And so here, verse 1, we're told, Yahweh spoke. And the message is clearly articulated. It's not a vague sense that the Lord might be leading him. This is a crystal clear message, and it's delivered in specific words, and the exact words are recorded for us. So, uh, in fact, before I read the passage, let me give you some context. Moses has just died, and Moses' death was one of the most remarkable deaths in the Old Testament. Scripture makes a, a definite point of telling us that despite his old age, Moses was in perfect health. Deuteronomy 34, verse 7. Now, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was not dim, nor his vigor abated. Moses, you know, was not a self-important or domineering type of leader. Numbers 12, verse 3 tells us that the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Remarkable statement. But there was that one occasion in Numbers chapter 20 at Meribah when Moses sinned in front of everyone, lost his patience, and lost his temper with the people of Israel. And commentators are divided over precisely what Moses did wrong. Was it that the Lord told him to speak to the rock, but he struck it instead? And in fact, he struck it twice, and instead of speaking to the rock, he yelled angrily at the people of Israel. And so here's the reality of that situation. On several levels, he just totally lost it. Now, while I think practically... All of us who are pastors can sympathize with Moses' frustration. This, this public display of human anger was so egregious, I I think the details aren't really recorded for us in Scripture. It must have been so egregious because the Lord severely rebuked him and permanently restricted him from entering the promised land. Numbers 20, verse 12, Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Reminds us of James chapter 1, verse 20. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So that's why Moses died when the Israelites were reaching the doorstep of the promised land. Even though he was apparently in really good health, even at such an advanced age, great health, this didn't come as a surprise to Moses or to the people of Israel. 
Three chapters before this, in Deuteronomy 32, Moses had made a farewell speech to the Israelites, and and this is interesting. He gave most of the message in that speech through the words of a song, and it wasn't like, you know, a Bob Coughlin chorus. This was a long and fairly scolding fatherly rebuke and warning, 42 verses of reproof and rebukes and exhortations. And by the way, that song expresses the exact same frustration Moses felt when he lost his temper in front of everyone. But this time, he conveys his concerns for them in a more sanctified manner. I can imagine Bob Coughlin doing it, you know, because he yells. I think Moses probably yelled a bit when he gave him the words of that song. It it certainly expresses that feeling. And then Deuteronomy 32, verse 48, Yahweh spoke to Moses that very same day, saying, go up to this mountain of the of the Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and look at the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the sons of Israel for possession, and then die on the mountain where you ascend, and be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people, because you both, that is, you and Aaron, acted unfaithfully with me in the midst of the sons of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, because you both did not treat me as holy in the midst of the sons of Israel. For you shall see the land at a distance, but you shall not go there into the land which I am giving to the sons of Israel. So it was a bitter disappointment for Moses not to be able to enter the promised land, and the people of Israel undoubtedly sensed what a blow this was to Moses, because they knew they were largely responsible, and uh, in fact, they were the ones who provoked him to anger. Moses himself held them partly responsible, and he told them so at the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 3.26, he told the Israelites, I also pleaded with Yahweh at that time to, to rescind this sentence, to let him into the promised land, but Moses says, he was angry with me on your account, and he would not listen to me. And Yahweh said to me, enough, speak to me no more of this matter. In other words, Moses apparently had repeatedly implored the Lord to relent and let him into the promised land, and finally the Lord told him to stop asking. And that is practically the starting point of the book of Deuteronomy, and that book ends then with four chapters about Moses' death. So Deuteronomy is bookended with the story of Moses' bitter disappointment as he is kept out of the promised land. And then in the final verses of Deuteronomy, Moses does get to look at the promised land from a nearby mountain, and Yahweh says to him again, I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of Yahweh, died there in the land of Moab according to the command of Yahweh. And Deuteronomy 34, verse 8, adds this, The sons of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Now, that is the chronological point at which the book of Joshua begins. Joshua 1, verse 1. Now, it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of Yahweh, that Yahweh spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' attendant. And Yahweh commissions Joshua to lead the Israelites from that point on. He will basically 
step into the role of leadership that was vacated when Moses died. Verse 5, Yahweh says, just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. And verses 2 through 5 then are an extended promise of victory in the conquest of the land and the destruction of the Canaanites. Yahweh assures Joshua that the land belongs to Israel. Verse 2, I am giving to them the land, future tense. And then verse 3, I have given it to you, past tense. And so he's saying the land already belongs to them. They have to take possession of it. And Joshua's task is to lead them in that quest. And make no mistake, this is a call to war. The Canaanites were not going to hand over the keys to the promised land willingly. And therefore, the instructions that follow tell Joshua to prepare for a long series of bloody conflicts. And the whole nation understood this. Moses had told them in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1, When Yahweh your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and he clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and stronger than you, and when Yahweh your God gives them over before you and you strike them down, then you shall devote them to destruction." You shall cut no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Now, notice the language. The message here is clear. God is the one doing this. This, is, this slaughter of the Canaanites is not a, a merely a genocide that is carried out by a cruel people merely to gain political advantage. People always stumble over this. But this was clearly a divine judgment because of the extreme wickedness of those tribes whose abominations were too gross to to be described in detail. And several times, the Lord tells them, for this reason, I'm driving the Canaanites out. That's what he says when he gives them the law. Obey this law, because they didn't do these things. It's the reason I'm driving the Canaanites out. And now, in Joshua 1, we have Joshua's marching orders for the task that lay ahead. Yahweh begins with a a detailed promise in which he not only guarantees victory, but he also promises his abiding presence. Verse 5, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you, I will not fail you or forsake you. Notice, those are all promises, guarantees. These are divine assurances that Joshua can count on because this is the sure and certain word of God. And then in our text, verses 6 through 9, notice he shifts into the imperative mood. Those were promises. Now these are commands given to Joshua. This is his military commission with orders from the highest of military high command. And this is our text, verse 6. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be, very, be strong and very courageous, to be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn aside from it to the right or to the left, so that you may be prosperous wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, 
so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way successful, and then you will be prosperous. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be in dread or be dismayed, for Yahweh your God is with you wherever you go. And the next verse tells us that Joshua immediately took the reins of leadership and began to lead the people of Israel. So this is an important transitional moment in the history of Israel and an important commission that God gives him. Now, I want to show you that these four verses we are looking at are a commission that actually applies by implication, by principle, to every kind of spiritual leadership. And this charge to Joshua contains principles that apply to all of us who are in positions of leadership in the church of Jesus Christ. I mean, have you got that? The same underlying principles that were given to guide Joshua in the conquest of Canaan apply to us, you and me, as pastors and elders in the church. How do we know that? Well, for one thing, every key element of this passage is repeated and elaborated on by the Apostle Paul in his pastoral epistles. Paul's instructions to Timothy and Titus actually parallel this passage in Joshua. The same basic principles that the Lord stresses with Joshua are pastoral duties that each one of us is accountable for. Scripture also recognizes that pastoral ministry entails an element of warfare. Not physical warfare, but spiritual warfare. Paul says to Timothy, be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Fight the good fight. And in fact, the apostle repeatedly likens the task of leading the church to warfare. And it is, like I said, spiritual warfare, so that unlike the battles that Joshua was facing, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. And the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they are divinely powerful truth. That's our weapon. And yet, we are, you and I, in a conflict where the stakes are actually much higher than physical warfare, because what is at stake is eternal. But the principles that make a man fit for leadership in spiritual warfare are exactly parallel to these instructions that God gave Joshua. For example, notice, and this should jump out at you when I read it, notice the repetition of our, uh, in our text of words that speak of strength and courage. And now listen to how Paul instructed Timothy. 2 Timothy 2 verse 3 is where Paul tells him, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And two verses before that, he says to him, You, therefore, my child, be strong. And he also urges Timothy to be courageous, 2 Timothy 1.7. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of either the witness about our Lord or me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. It's a longer way of saying be strong and courageous. Same instructions Joshua got applied to Timothy and they apply to you and me. And like Joshua, Timothy was commanded to study and meditate on the Word of God and never let that cease being the chief thing that fills both your mind and your speech. Be diligent to present yourself 
approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And preach the word in season and out of season. Don't let it depart from your mouth. It's the same thing. But reprove, rebuke, exhort. And so I hope you see that every element, every major element in this charge that is given to Joshua is repeated and emphasized in the New Testament's instructions for pastors. And that's why this text is so important. And it applies in a very personal way to you and to me, as well as to Joshua. And it intrigues me that as Joshua is handed the responsibility for leading Israel, other than this admonition in verses 7 and 8 about keeping the word of the Lord at the center of his focus, other than that, nothing is said about methodology or style or tone or strategy. He is not told to be clever or creative or nuanced or savvy with regard to the tastes and values of the Canaanites. In fact, the, the commands that Yahweh gives him make a surprisingly short list. Specifically, he is to be constant and courageous and consumed with the Word of God. And all of that goes with the theme of this year's conference, unashamed. Courage is the dominant element here, and it's the heart of the matter. Fortitude. Yahweh is calling Joshua to exemplify masculine courage, stout-hearted, fearless, tenacious bravery, steadfast immovability, especially with regard to the Word of God. And let me point out that three times in the span of four verses, these twin virtues of strength and courage are specifically named together. Verse 6, be strong and courageous. Verse 7, more emphatically, only be strong and very courageous. And verse 9, reiterates the command with some extra words of detail. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be in dread or dismayed. Now, some of you may have cringed to hear me refer to strength and courage as manly values, masculine qualities, because our culture bombards us with relentless propaganda trying to get us to deny that there is any such thing as a masculine quality, or else to get us to believe that masculinity itself is toxic. And of course, I would never deny the truth that women can and and do exhibit both strength and courage. When we say these are masculine qualities, we don't say that these are qualities no woman has. That's not the point. But the courage that is called for in this context is a distinctly masculine trait. These are instructions for a man leading other men into combat. And the point in labeling it a masculine trait is not to suggest that women can't display courage. Of course they can. But when a man lacks courage, he's being unmanly. Now, I realize that there are evangelicals so steeped in the androgynous values of postmodern culture that they refuse to acknowledge these basic differences between men and women. But there is the stubborn fact that Scripture speaks of wives as the weaker vessel. In other words, the Bible acknowledges that by God's own design and purpose, strength is generally more natural to men than to women. 
And if you doubt that, ask all the women swimmers who keep getting beat by a guy who wears a skirt. <laughs> scripture, scripture also acknowledges clearly that both strength and courage belong to the category of manly virtues. These are masculine traits. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 makes that connection, that very connection, when it says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And so here in Joshua 1, Yahweh is basically telling Joshua to be a man, man up, cultivate the manly qualities of strength and steadfastness, and above all, stout-hearted courage. Those are absolute essentials for any level of godly spiritual leadership. Now, the culture in which we live and minister is so far gone, so overwhelmed with the idea that masculinity itself is toxic, so devoted to the feminization of all public discourse, that even many supposedly evangelical pulpits have become platforms for girlish sentiments and soapboxes for feminist dogmas. So I need to say this. Muscular strength and manly courage are virtues. These are not flaws and defects, and they are not inherently toxic. And yet, we've reached a point in the church where you're almost certain to be scolded if you speak out with, with strength or courage against any of the popular falsehoods that dominate our culture. Scripture commands us to arm ourselves with the truth and to use our influence as spiritual leaders the way Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, namely, for the destruction of ideological fortresses, destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The truth is, if you do that today... Chances are you will be openly rebuked or scornfully subtweeted by someone who speaks for your denomination or by someone who writes for one of these big tented evangelical organizations. You'll be told that, you know, you'd have more influence and you'd be a better testimony if you would soften your tone. And, and hold your beliefs with a little less certainty and, and do whatever it takes to avoid conflict. You know, you need to just listen instead of quoting Scripture. And let's be honest, there, there are certainly some people out there who need to soften their tone. 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 through 26 says, The Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the full knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So again, our enemies are not flesh and blood. We tear down those ideological strongholds in order to liberate people who are being held captive by them. So the goal is not to crush people. There are some, you know, self-styled warriors out there who, who don't seem to understand that distinction. A thirst for conflict is a disqualifying characteristic. Elders in the church are not supposed to be pugnacious. First Timothy 6.11, you, O man of God, 
pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness. Remember, the whole reason Moses was barred from entering the promised land with the Israelites was because he lost his temper publicly with people he was supposed to be leading and ministering to. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and all of those things are antithetical to the brand of, you know, perpetual quarrelsomeness that some people think is essential to the exercise of discernment. Unfortunately, they've managed to make even the word discernment odious to lots of young believers who don't yet have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And that's a significant problem today. I don't deny it. Some of you may think I'm part of the problem. But in reality, one of the crying needs in the mainstream of the evangelical movement today is not softer voices, but a large dose of strong and courageous biblical discernment from men who see it as their duty to adopt the spirit of Joshua and lay waste to the worldview and values of this secular culture that is already encroaching on the level of wickedness that doomed these Canaanites to utter destruction. We live in that kind of culture. We can't just be soft soft and passive in the midst of it. And it is true that Jesus described himself as gentle and humble in heart, meek and lowly. But he also made a whip and turned over tables and boldly drove out a herd of money changers from the Temple Mount. He never backed away from a conflict with the Pharisees. He never softened his criticisms or toned down his teaching or cushioned his message so that, you know, they won't be triggered. And in fact, on the contrary, as I read the New Testament, there are many times where it's pretty clear that Jesus purposely provoked the false teachers of the Pharisees, not because he loved conflict, but because he loved the truth of God's Word, and he couldn't stand to see it corrupted with the Pharisees' man-made traditions. That's the spirit we're supposed to adopt. In fact, no one has ever been more fierce in the battle for truth than Jesus. That was true during his incarnation. And listen to how Scripture portrays him at his return. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. So he is the epitome of manly strength and courage. More about that in a minute, but Jesus is the model of what we're to achieve. So let's be honest about the state of things in our current generation. Soft and timid and faint-hearted leaders are not actually in short supply in the church today. You know this. I question whether evangelicals really need to hear these incessant admonitions from within the big tent, you know, telling us we need to tone down the message and ease up on the militant words and language and lighten up on the reproofs and rebukes and exhortations and just, you know, seek to encourage everybody with the idea that God loves them. Mainstream evangelicalism today is dominated by a craven desire to avoid conflict at all costs. And and I don't think there is a single historic Christian conviction that isn't currently under attack 
in one way or another by by people who self-identify as evangelicals. We have a real problem on our hands. And that's been true, by the way, for decades. First we had, you know, seeker-sensitive churches and then the emerging church movement and now a, a gaggle of voices within Big Eva telling us incessantly, you know, don't be so disagreeable. Contending earnestly for the faith is overrated, but winsomeness is much more strategic than forthrightness if we hope to win postmodern people. You can't tell people they're wrong. I wonder what Joshua's commission or Timothy's instructions for leading the church would sound like if it were, if it were written by some of today's evangelical pundits. You know, it would say, be delicate and nuanced. And I'm convinced they would tell him, avoid conflict at all costs. And above all, avoid open conflict with the academic and intellectual or political elites who have so much influence in our culture. Don't, don't contradict people like that. You need to seek their esteem and their admiration instead. And meanwhile, the secular world is becoming even more set against the truth of Scripture than ever. The current generation of young adults have been indoctrinated in postmodern values since they were in preschool, literally, so that they automatically protest against every expression of certainty and courage and conviction, and especially biblical conviction. That's hated in our culture. We need to lean into it. Notice, the badges of this generation are things like safe spaces and trigger warnings and comfort animals and participation trophies so that everybody's supposed to feel good about himself and it's, it's considered uncharitable to say or do anything that might upset someone's self-love. The greatest love of all. But so, biblical virtue and values have been turned on their head and vulnerability and victimhood are deemed heroic nowadays but strength and courage and masculinity in general have been reclassified so that these are no longer virtues. They're microaggressions or they're social faux pas or toxic attitudes, and manhood itself is deemed toxic, seen as a major threat to a fragile and feminized culture. Strength and courage have been replaced by sensitivity and victimhood as the virtues that are most valued by our culture. And secular minds have so completely bought into that notion that we literally have a former Olympic decathlon gold medalist leading a parade of men who now self-identify as women. President Biden has appointed men who masquerade as women to two top posts in the federal government. This is considered normal nowadays. And what's most ominous about secular culture's assault on manhood is that lots of sympathy and even support for that trend has begun to creep into the evangelical movement. And attacks on masculinity among evangelicals have reached epidemic levels, and the push now to allow women to preach or be ordained comes from people who used to call themselves complementarians. These days they call themselves Soft complementarians, which is a fittingly girlish adjective. (laughs) Soft, soft. They want to be known as soft because the world values sponginess and 
despises steadfast immovability. And above all, you know, we don't want to appear odious in the eyes of a watching world when masculinity is thought of as toxic. And so instead of standing against a clearly dangerous trend, the evangelical mainstream has begun to absorb and embrace it and try to make it sound as if it's a biblical idea. That is the legacy of Christianity Today-style evangelicalism. And for the past few decades, that same, at least for the past decade, that same spirit of accommodation has been increasingly embodied in Big Eva, that massive subculture of well-funded, big-tent evangelical coalitions whose strategy for engaging culture is to assimilate as much of popular culture as they can as if they believed that friendship with the world is a smart strategy for evangelism rather than an evil attitude that would set us at enmity with God. The church has no business embracing the fragility and feminization that has so crippled all of Western society in these postmodern times. You've heard this from me before. Twelve years ago in a session here at Shepherd's Conference, I preached on 1 Corinthians 16, 13, the verse that says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And at that time, the emerging church movement, which thankfully is now defunct, but sadly left a whole lot of ideas that are still percolating through our movement. But the emerging church movement was at the peak of its influence in those days. And one of the effects of that movement was an aggressive effort to soften and feminize evangelicals. And in fact, one leader in the emerging church movement famously said that he believes preaching is an act of violence and that we need to encourage open sharing of everyone's feelings instead of one guy preaching all the time. And in my message that year, I read a list of comments that had been gleaned from a number of evangelical, or rather emergent authors, talking about how they believed preaching needed to change. And I remarked that their list of rules for preachers, really sounded more like a list of rules for figure skaters. But I have to say, we weren't the only ones at the time who noticed this assault on manhood. It's been talked about a lot. It just hasn't been fixed yet. And some of the remedies that have been offered are really, frankly, no better than the disease itself. John Eldridge wrote a book, Wild at Heart, in which he portrayed manhood almost like a gladiator sport, and he managed to make masculinity sound like a little boy's fantasy. And at the same time, Mark Driscoll seemed to think that masculinity was best expressed in raw language and bravado, and others were suggesting that the way to cultivate manliness is by moving the men's Bible study to the pub, where guys would drink beer while they talk theology. You remember John MacArthur wrote a famous blog post about the folly of that approach, And he was instantly excommunicated by the young, restless, reformed. Some even accused him of attacking manliness. And we were saying, even then, that real manliness starts with Christ-like strength and courage. And and it's crowned with all the other Christ-like virtues, as well as the fruit of the Spirit. And in fact, Ephesians 4.13 explicitly defines what it means to be a mature man. And it's when we achieve the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. 
And that includes his strength and courage and steadfastness, his love for the truth and his opposition to falsehood, and yes, his gentle, lowly heart of compassion for the people of God, especially the tenderness of the shepherd who leaves the 99 on the mountains and goes in search of the one who's straying. All of that is part of true masculinity. But true Christ-like masculinity is also embodied in the watchman who enters the place of worship with a whip, seething with righteous indignation, and drives out those who've made it into a robber's den. All of that. And the task Joshua was commissioned for was analogous to that. The Canaanites were not driven from the land for any reason other than their own extreme wickedness. They had made themselves loathsome and detestable to God. And again, it wasn't an act of human cruelty to exterminate them. It was an act of divine judgment. Israel was not a bullying oppressor. They weren't even a trained army. They were a ragtag crowd of people who had spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. This was the most unlikely group of people to conquer those tribes that were well-practiced in warfare and violence. Listen to Deuteronomy 9, verses 1 through 3. Hear, O Israel, you are crossing over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, great cities fortified to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak. And so you know today that it is Yahweh your God who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them, and he will subdue them before you, so that you may dispossess them and make them perish quickly, just as Yahweh has spoken to you. So this is an act of God, and Scripture stresses that. And by the way, the Israelites, they were not being given the land because they had earned it. They had been stubborn and disobedient repeatedly really since the day they left Israel or left Egypt 40 years before this, Deuteronomy 9, verse 6, so you shall know that it is not because of your righteousness that Yahweh your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. And the passage then goes on to rehearse a list of Israel's failures. But the Canaanites and their cousins were larger nations, with bigger and more well-trained, well-equipped armies. These were tough people. And the successful conquest of the promised land would not be owing to Israel's military might. This was a divine judgment. Deuteronomy 9.4, It is because of the wickedness of these nations that Yahweh is dispossessing them before you, because of their wickedness. And so it would be clear to all that this is the Lord's doing. And the the repeated command then for Joshua to be strong in chapter 1, this is not telling him to beef beef up the military. This is not even about Joshua's personal physical prowess. This is a call for him to cultivate strength of character and virtue and steadfastness and skill in teaching the Scriptures and, of course, great fortitude in the face of so many imposing enemies. And the Hebrew imperative in all three places, verse 6, verse 7, and verse 9, it's the same word each time, and it means stand strong, be firm, be resolute, harden yourself. The Hebrew word for strength actually includes the idea of courage. 
And the word translated be courageous in all three verses is a completely different Hebrew word, but it likewise has the connotation of strength and steadfastness and determination, even obstinacy. So this is a double imperative calling him to stand strong and firm and do it with great courage. And it's clear, isn't it, that the the place where he is to make his stand and not budge is, verse 8, this book of the law. That's what he's to stand on. That's what he's to be courageous about. Again, the truth of God's word is where every spiritual leader must stand and refuse to move. And the Lord gives Joshua three encouragements to bolster his courage, three reasons for him not to fear in the face of what appeared to be overwhelming odds against him. And the first is God's promise. As I pointed out in the beginning, those opening verses of Joshua 1 are simply statements of promise. God is assuring Joshua that the promised land already belongs to Israel, verse 2. The land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel, verse 3. I have given it to you. So the land is theirs. They just need to take possession of it. Verse 6 is a command, but it is specifically linked to God's promise, and his promise is confirmed with an oath. You shall cause this people to inherit the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. So what could be more encouraging to Joshua than Yahweh's own pledge that the land belonged to Israel as their inheritance because he had already given it to them? And verse 6 in the King James Version says this, Unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land, which I swore to their fathers to give them. And the Hebrew term has that connotation of an inheritance that needs to be divided and distributed to the rightful heirs, but again, it already belongs to them. It's not something they're going to inherit. God has already given it to them. They need to possess it and divide it amongst themselves. And 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says, All the promises of God are in him, yea, and in him, amen, unto the glory of God. So the point is, God's promises are as sure and certain as he is immutable. And in this case, he not only made the promise, he confirmed it with an oath, verse 6. I swore to their fathers to give them the land. And Hebrews 6.17 says that when God confirms his promise with an oath, that's for this reason to show the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose. So he guaranteed it with an oath in order that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, those two things, the promise and the oath, so it's doubly sure, so that we who take refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us, which is exactly what Joshua is being called to do. Just lay hold of what's been set before you. So the oath on top of the promise multiplies the motive for Joshua and the Israelites to be courageous. Now, a footnote here. Notice in verse 4 the exact boundaries of the land the Lord promised, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. If you lay that out on a map, it looks like this. The wilderness... That covers the entire Sinai Peninsula to the south, all the way to the border of Egypt. The northern border extends, it says, to Lebanon. 
The eastern boundary is the Euphrates River, and the western boundary is the Mediterranean. Now, Israel did not fully possess all that land until the time of Solomon. 1 Kings 4, 21 says, Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river, that's the river Euphrates, to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. So basically covers all of the land that the Lord promised. But even then, they didn't really rid the western sector of the Philistines. And so the Amorites continued to trouble Israel well past the time of David, so that Israel never really completely finished the job that God gave them to do. But don't draw the wrong conclusion from that. This does not mean that the promise of God failed. Israel's failure to possess and hold the land was owing to their own unbelief and unfaithfulness and perhaps a bit of laziness. But there was no deficiency or duplicity in the promise of God. And in fact, that promise will be fulfilled and more when Messiah returns and the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. But for Joshua, this promise was indeed a powerful motive for the strength and courage he needed in order to lead that generation of Israelites. Here's a second motive. First, God's promise. Second, we'll call it God's provision, because I can't keep myself from alliterating everything, and I'm sorry. God's provision. Just remember, Yahweh is commissioning Joshua to lead Israel into war against seven nations that are more numerous and stronger than them. And I don't know about you, but if I'm Joshua, I'd want to be, some, I'd want to be supplied with some heavy weapons, right? But instead of carnal weapons... Yahweh directs Joshua to his word. Verse 8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written therein. And it's significant, I think, that the command is not to to let the word of God... The command is, is to let the word of God not depart from his mouth. It doesn't say his eyes or his mind or his hands... But don't let it depart from your mouth. And he doesn't mean don't let it be spoken out of your mouth. He's saying keep it in your mouth all the time you're speaking. And in John Calvin's commentary, he points out the way this command is worded, shows that Joshua was to study and meditate on the word of the Lord, not only for his own personal benefit, but for the people under his leadership. Because the implication here is that he is to be their teacher as well as their military captain. You know, it was to teach the law to the nation. They didn't have copies of Scripture to carry with them. There were no doubt already some scribes making copies of what Moses had written down, but there was no practical way in Joshua's time so that the Pentateuch could be easily available to everyone. Couldn't do it. And so one of Joshua's main duties was to teach people what was in the book of the law, And he was to do it constantly. That's what this means. Don't stop doing it. Don't let it, you know, depart from your mouth. Don't close your mouth and stop doing it. And this is important. The promise, then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. That is often quoted and claimed in a way that divorces it from its context. This is not a general promise of success in business or material prosperity in return for memorizing and meditating on Scripture. That's not what this promise means. 
You know, keeping God's word in your heart is conducive to every kind of legitimate success. That's true. And that principle is a general truism that you'll find, for example, in Psalm 1 and throughout Psalm 119 and and throughout the book of Proverbs and elsewhere. But this verse in Joshua 1 is a specific promise to Joshua that he will be successful in his military campaign to possess the land if he keeps God's word at the top of the nation's priorities. And that same principle holds true for ministers today. You know, all the, all the uh, currently stylish church growth experts and, and books on ministry philosophy that seem obsessed with gimmickry and missional strategies and, and things that aim to attract audiences and make Christianity look more appealing to unbelievers. But the truth is, as Vody said last night, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. All the clever strategies and additional attractional gimmicks, those are precisely the kinds of carnal weapons that we're commanded not to depend on. And in the list of spiritual armor in Ephesians 6, there is only one offensive weapon, and it's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And the thing is, God's Word is a sufficient provision. Truth is, it's more than sufficient. Israel saw this lesson in real life during their very first incursion into the promised land at Jericho when the walls collapsed and the city was routed by the power of God without siege engines or without any trained army because the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. That's 2 Corinthians 10.4 again. And the weapons that the apostle is referring to in 2 Corinthians there are the doctrines and reproofs and corrections and righteous instructions of God's Word. Those are the only true and effective weapons for the kind of warfare that you and I as ministers are engaged in. Now, God's promise was sure and reliable. God's provision is powerful for the pulling down of strongholds. Here's a third reason for Joshua to be strong and courageous, courageous, region number three, because of God's presence. Verse 9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be in dread or dismayed, for Yahweh your God is with you wherever you go. That's an echo of verse 5, just as I've been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. And notice that the first part of that verse, verse 5, No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Because indeed, if God is for us, who can stand against us? Right? I can't think of any stronger encouragement to fortitude than the knowledge that God is with us wherever we go. And he has equipped us with his word, the truth. Isaiah 41 verse 10, God says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will make you mighty. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And by the way, this truth is embodied in one of the names of Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. And Christ himself makes this very same promise even more emphatically to all of us in Hebrews 13.5. He himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And in the closing words of Matthew's gospel, 
Jesus says, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Again, the words of Yahweh to Joshua in this passage apply in principle to all of us who are called to positions of spiritual leadership. We have the Lord's promises, exceeding great and precious promises, that His Word is effectual, that it will not return void, that our labor is not in vain in the Lord, and that in due time we will reap if we don't grow weary. Those are enough promises for me. We have the Lord's provision, His Word, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And we have the Lord's presence. In the words of Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or in dread, for Yahweh your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Don't give in to stylish strategies and human wisdom in the conduct of your ministry, but preach the word in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction, and also with great strength and courage. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Let's pray. Father, grant us your strength and courage by your grace. Keep us so anchored in your word that it fills our message and governs our conduct and equips us for all of the trials and frustrations of our ministries. We're grateful for the promise of your presence. And we pray that when we are fatigued or tempted to be unfaithful, that you would bear us up for the service that you have called us to do. I thank you for this room full of men, for their devotion to the truth. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our collective resolve, and may we be instruments through which your elect are saved, that Christians are instructed, and servants of Christ are encouraged and strengthened, and above all, Christ is glorified. We pray in his name. Amen.